0: Hello everyone, it's Andre from Mental Health. I'm here with Dr. Sarah Hughes from the Centre for Mental Health, um, who's a really key person in this Tale of Three Cities project. So Sarah, I want to ask you about what we need to do to make a difference, because a lot of today Mm -hmm. has been about, you know, the really, really difficult, challenging lives of people with a personality disorder diagnosis. So let's talk about the positive things that we can do to bring about change collaboration is a key part of this, tell us how it's been done and why that's so important to move us forward in this field.
1: Thank you. I mean, look, today's been very much about that storytelling piece, really giving people the space, the support to share the painful stuff because I think um, in mental health you often, um, you know, somebody said it, didn't they, in the, during the event, you know, we talk about awareness and it's all kind of go for a walk, have a nice bath... But for the majority of people, their experience of personality disorder is nowhere near that. You know, it's it's on the other side of the playing field. And so today we wanted to honour those experiences and just give space to that. We wanted people who are in decision-making roles to hear it directly without any filters, without any kind of barriers. So we've, we've tried to create the space to do that. It's never long enough. We never have enough time to really create the space for exactly what we want. But we've tried to make those connections. And I guess we're talking about change and we're talking about, you know, what is the vision for Personality Disorder Services? And I, there isn't one vision. Uh, there isn't one answer, it's incredibly complicated. It's incredibly perennial. So this is a, an issue that we've been experiencing, certainly since I started my career, 32 years ago. You know, like, this is not new news. And so there has to be a tipping point. And I don't know what the tipping point is, um, but I'm starting to wonder if the tipping point isn't the young people we've heard today, actually, who are speaking incredibly differently Um, about their experience, taking power in a different way that we've been used to in mental health services and, you know, our circles. Um, So I think they represent change. They will take us into the new era. But what it will demand is organisations somehow to step out of their power. And this is all very new language in a way, but it will demand um, the NHS local, national, uh, third sector providers, other providers, to really kind of step aside a bit and say, okay, what is really going to make the difference? And we know that we get stuck on the label, we get stuck on the cause, but actually, fundamentally, it's a group of people with this set of experiences that pretty much, you know, the prognosis is the worst of all of the mental health conditions. So with that said... um, It's now an opportunity for us to listen to the young people give us the solutions because that's what they're doing, they're giving us solutions and we just need to be brave enough to take them on. There is a problem inherent in that in that whilst we're developing and growing all the time in our collaborative efforts there's still some difficulty in thinking about you know, how do we collaborate to move this forward? Who collaborates? Um, Why do we do it? You know, what will it cost? What will we lose? And all of those questions we can answer, actually. Um, But we've just got to be brave enough to sit at the table as leaders and say, we don't have the answer. Um, But we know a young person who does. Um, I think we need to try and understand that we are part of the problem, So, you know, the system as it's designed at the moment is fundamentally part of um, sabotaging people's ability to get the help they need. Um, Creating the conditions for them to, um, you know, live lives that aren't fulfilling, that are dangerous, that are disconnected. Um, And I don't think that's what we all set out to do. I don't think you know when I speak to my colleagues in the NHS and I speak to my colleagues in services. This is not what we want to do. So why are we doing it? And there is a there is a point at which we have to really sincerely ask ourselves those questions. Um, so I don't know what the future holds, really, other than I think we and lots of other people here today have a kind of energy behind it because you know I, I was saying to somebody else earlier on that. In personality disorder circles, we have, like, ten-year cycles of raising the profile of the condition and the stigma and discrimination. Then it all goes quiet again. And then, you know, we sort of say something again about how difficult it is. And nothing really changes, you know. So um, I'm thinking now, you know, what what can we do as an organisation? And some of that is using our research making sure that we're using peer research to make make sure that we're creating the space for lived experience but also being brave in some of the recommendations to services about what they need to do what they could do that would make the difference and trying not with the very best will in the world kind of rehash some of you know the conversations we've been having for decades but that's gonna that's going to be tough.
0: The conventional response that you get from people that organise services or from academics when you talk about this sort of stuff is, you know, oh, there's this great innovative stuff going on at grassroots or in the community. We want to try and harness that and bring it into the services that we provide for people. And I wonder if that's just not the way to organise this, but actually that we need to just think much more radically about how we support young people. Yeah, what's your thinking on? that?
1: Absolutely agree. I think I think we we don't know exactly what services we need in secondary care, and the reason why we don't know is because we've never had a comprehensive community um, way of working with people that really deals with their issues at the earliest opportunity. Right. So, I you know I we have this argument all the time. We need you know more CAMS, and we may need more CAMS. That's but that's Possibly true. But what about if we had lots of intervention in schools, that we had lots of opportunities for young people to do things outside of school, that we had um, emotional literacy um, in a way that we've not had before, that we attend to people's cultural needs, that we don't adopt a kind of white clinical model of engagement? If we did that, it's our view that it would be... um, radical transformational we perhaps would only need half the amount of mental health stuff that we have at the moment or we think we might need because actually um, the answers are very rarely seeing a psychiatrist every two weeks or seeing a psychologist every two weeks the answers are about enabling people to live healthy happy lives at the earliest Moment, and that is you know, naught to fives. What support are we giving parents? You know, we've got parents here today that have lost their children. You know, what would have happened if we had given them the resources that they need, the, the information that they need? We've got the wonderful Wendy here from Roller Coaster, and again, really empowering people with the tools, the knowledge to make the difference that they can in their own homes. And I think. Until we really step away from this kind of very white medical model, I'm not too sure we're going to get to a place of of change that we need to see. I think the answer is in the community. I think the answer is is sustaining grassroots organisations being more creative, um, but we have to turn the tap off somehow um, in funding, you know, the kind of the worst case scenario and start thinking about a kind of hopeful commissioning funding environment that really gives people what they need.
0: So if people in services or people in academia are listening to that and say... That sounds like what I'm after. <laughs> I'd like to get involved in that. Yeah. How, what would you say to them? Because there's a huge gap, isn't there? It's really hard for them to bridge that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's really difficult for uh, policymakers and academics to stretch themselves. And part, the, part of the way that we do it at the Centre is by using working with peer researchers. So fundamentally, we can't really do anything without peer research engagement with what we're doing and that's partly because we know that our you know there's all sorts of bias in research um we know for for instance in mental health terms you know much of the research has been undertaken on white participants male cisgendered participants and so from that perspective there's a whole whole nation of people that are not being attended to so it's about academics being braver you know, trying to move from that traditional model, partnering with other organisations, stepping away from... So we have this kind of thing in research, the hierarchy of evidence. The hierarchy of evidence honestly drives me up the wall. And it drives me up the wall because it very clearly says this type of evidence trumps that evidence every time. The reality is is that the the evidence that trumps all others is in the form of, you know, like... um, RCTs, you know, uh, clinical controlled trials, all of these sorts of things, um, they, they have very little meaning in real terms. Lots of the time, it could take 10 years for any of the learning that you might have in an academic study to have any impact on real life. So we need to kind of short-circuit some of that. I'm not saying we don't need evidence, it's what my organisation does, we build evidence, but it's the type of evidence we're building. And it's not enough anymore to be an academic or a clinician in your room looking at data sets. It's not going to cut it for the future.